This week on The Futurists, Amir Gavi. I suspect maybe one of the reasons people are afraid of AI is that it's trained on us. Well, welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik, and joining me once again in the co-host chair is my buddy, Brett. Hi, world traveler. Hey, Good. hey, 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 hey. I'm I'm in Thailand, obviously. Um, I've got the Tech Source Conference on this weekend, which is one of the biggest uh, um, future tech events. So we just had the speakers dinner tonight. So uh, um, some interesting people in town. Uh, very cool. That's good fun. I want to hear more about. I want to hear more about Bangkok. Um, you know, for the last couple of months, I've been getting deep into the topic of artificial intelligence and copyright. I was invited to. Yeah, I've been reading your, you've done a series of. of your, yeah, yeah. I'm posting what I found because what happened is I went to this event that I was invited to by Creative Commons and they held a really cool thing. It was, um, uh, the topic was generative AI and copyright. And they gathered together all sorts of folks from across the legal and uh, entertainment and screenwriting industries to have this uh, session to talk about how copyright and generative AI fit together. And I got to tell you, Brett, when I went to that event, I started out with, I think, what I would call kind of a folklore version of an understanding of what copyright is. And what I found is a lot of creative people share that. A lot of, the, a lot of my screenwriter friends share that view, which is the idea that, that gee, you have these artificial intelligence systems and they're being trained on, on, on uh, publicly available work but quite a lot of it is copyrighted. And you know, most people, most people don't know how that training is done. The companies that do it don't really reveal exactly how they're doing the training necessarily. And so um, as a result, I approached this event with the kind of an understanding of like, how is this not copyright infringement? That was, that was my starting point when I went to this event. Yeah. You know, it's, I, it's interesting. I mean, um, you know, there, there can be an argument um, particularly when you've got such widespread data access, that data is sort of, um, you know, a, a common good. Almost. Well, this is the thing. I mean, right. look, if you talk to the tech industry and particularly the AI companies, they're like, you can scrape the web. Like that's been tested and right. proven again and again yeah. and again in yeah. the court of law. Um, and so I guess my epiphany was that after going to two of these creative common events, my understanding of it has been completely reversed. Where I think mm -hmm. I approached it from a kind of like, you know, certainly sympathetic to writers and certainly sympathetic, to, you know. I mean, both, I, both I, I, so I, I applaud you for that because not a lot, you know, it, it, not a lot of people can sort of change their opinion on some of this stuff. But well, it's because I had the good fortune to meet some really, really smart people who are very focused on this. And, and frankly, they come to the subject matter with a fair degree of education. Uh, one of the people who enlightened me is an attorney from a firm called Fried Frank in New York. Uh, he's a uh, IP and technology attorney, and his name is Amir Gavi. And we've had a number of good conversations where he's been able to help me understand where my thinking was incorrect. Some of the things I brought, you know, are kind of like sentimental arguments, I'd say. Right. But anyway, what I decided would be a good idea was would be to bring him on our show. So today we've got Amir Gavi joining us from New York. Uh, Amir is actually not just uh, not just very well versed in the subject matter, but he is actually representing some of the some of the companies that are involved in the litigation. Uh, so, without further ado, hey, Amir, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks for joining the future. Hey, yeah, thanks, uh, Robert, Brett. Uh, thanks for having me. It's uh, I'm excited. So, right. so give us an overview of what's happening right now in the legal landscape with all of the generative AI companies uh, and, and the organizations that have copyright, because there's quite a lot of activity in your field. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the copyright nerds are excited because people uh, seemingly suddenly care about copyright again. I mean, we have these cycles and these moments, and usually, you know, the the, the fun cases that make it to the media, um, there will be, you know, recording artists, or there will be someone that claims that you know the idea for a script was was uh, stolen, and so you periodically have this refresher in the media about what copyright is and what it isn't. Um, I think we've we've really reached an interesting moment now. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing all manner of uh, misquotes um, and sort of misunderstandings about foundational copyright law. And I think that's due to a couple of reasons. One, I think the nature of AI is inherently more, uh, it's it's global. Right. These systems are being released largely, you know, internationally. And so when you have a song that's released, you know, you have a song in a language, uh, maybe in a particular, you know, style that's that's regionally a country music song. It has a limited following. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But with AI, it's, um, you know, in many ways breaking a lot of norms and, and one of which is releases of. Uh, systems and technology that are available on a global basis, right? I don't yeah. need mm-hmm. to bore everyone with with the you know sort of uptake numbers with Chat GPT. I'm sure you've gone through it, right? But sure. but if you look at the bar graph uh, that people show all the time of how many days it took, um, you know, to get Chat GPT to 100 million. Yeah, days. yeah, five million in, in two days and 100 million in a month. So the fastest growing consumer facing app in history. Uh, but I think you're right. You're, 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 what touched a nerve here trends, isn't necessarily open AI. It's the it. fact that the largest and biggest and most powerful tech companies in the world are rolling this out on a global basis. For instance, Microsoft intends to roll Copilot across their whole office suite of apps. That's a billion and a half users around the world. And so if you were an artist uh, or an author who created a copyrighted work, you might feel like your rights have been infringed. Like you can kind of understand it from, a, I, guess a, I guess, on a gut level. Well, but the point you're making like, is that on a on a legal level, what people sense or what they feel doesn't really apply, right? Like the the feelings that artists have don't really match up 100% with what copyright does. I think that's right. I mean, I'm very sensitive to um, the artist's position in the debate. And what mm-hmm. I think it would be helpful to do is sort of, you know, break those out a little bit, right? In in my experience, and you know, I think I've mentioned this to you, is in in, in really every case, when I speak to someone who expresses a visceral reaction to artificial intelligence as the technology, um, really it, what what they're coding for is a deep-rooted fear of being replaced. And they very rarely articulate their objection in that way. Um, they, 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 you know, it, it's only in the rarest circumstances where someone comes out and says, you know what, I don't like this because I think it's going to take my job or I think it's going to, you know, render me irrelevant. Uh, you, you start to hear a bunch of other, you know, red herrings or, you know, euphemisms, which to me, ultimately, I realize code for um, I'm going to be replaced. And one of the ways in which we're seeing that is this this emotional response and people, I think, to some degree, grasping for straws um, and, and are, are claiming copyright. We saw it most recently, um, and I don't know if, if you all have covered this, but in the uh, in the prose craft um, 
uh, news, right? So Proscraft is a really interesting, uh, was, I have to put it in past tense because the site's been taken down yeah. uh, as of last week, but it was a really interesting website that uh, indexed about 25,000 books. And what it allowed authors to do was to, you know, submit their language and to see, you know, how active it is relative to others <laughs> and just do really interesting semantic analysis. I'd now, like to do that. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. I read the story in the Times that kind of broke out yesterday and the day before uh, about this thing. So here is like a you know a single person coder, not a big tech company, doing something he thought was quite useful, which is allowing authors to run semantic analysis on their yeah, books. I'd love to do that. And uh, and tell us what happened, Amir, because uh, I guess he got a reaction he did not expect. He so um, I think it hit a fever pitch with the Gizmodo uh, story. And there are a number of media coverages, but but uh, uh, there was a vociferous reaction from authors claiming that it was plagiarizing uh, their books and that it was rank uh, stealing. And and it was it, it got so loud that um, that the creator, Benji Smith, just decided to, to take down the site, uh, which I think is unfortunate because it yeah. was a it was a very valuable tool. Mm. And I think this is where I'd like to highlight the distinction between, you know, what copyright law allows and what people decide to do, right? I think we have to separate out the law as it exists, right? What people are allowed to do versus what people decide to do, meaning yeah. the norms in society, uh, where we draw those lines, where policies lie, um, that's very different than than what one has the right to do, right? I mean, very famously, I think a lot of us lawyers remind clients that just because you have the right to do something doesn't necessarily mean you should. Um, and I think we can we can talk about that a little bit later in the context of sure. of licensing data sets um, for for AI training. But, but, but here here we yeah. have back to Proscraft. You have an example here of. Um, a single person who had an idea they thought was fair use, they went ahead and built the system, not trivial, like a ton of effort went into building that system. Some people found it useful. So actually it was doing the job it was supposed to do. But now because of a threat of, an, of a, law, a lawsuit, uh, effectively, this guy has now been silenced. He's taken the site offline. And so I wonder what, I wonder whether it was the threat of the lawsuit or it was actually just this moment we are in, the summer of 2023, where authors, content creators, uh, voicing an objection was enough. Um, mm -hmm. I, I suspect it was. I suspect it was the latter, um, where where they they frankly just made the founder of the site just feel bad for what he had done, which is I think in 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 uh, many ways I'm mean, pretty clearly legally defensible. There's a long line of uh, of, of cases. In mm -hmm. the context of text and data mining, you'll see the acronym TDM yeah. uh, in the field, um, starting with Kelly versus Arivasoft in, in the Ninth Circuit. Yeah, the court found, you know, there was fair use to get a full text copy of, of images on the Internet to enable web image search. And then you had the iParadigms case um, in the Fourth Circuit in 2009. iParadigms, if you remember, is a, a software that is a plagiarism detection tool. Right. So in order right. to train the plagiarism detection tool, you had to feed in a bunch of papers. People 
objected, um, but the courts found that that also was fair use. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, famously, right, the Google Books cases, the Authors Guild versus Happy Trust and and, and Google. But, you know, everyone, I think, at this point uh, understands the fact pattern, which was Google scanned in entire libraries of books through um, high-speed scanners in order to uh, make the text searchable and allow uh, them to run a bunch of, you know, textual and semantic analysis, like, you know, uh, word frequencies and, yeah. and sort of language evolution, really nerdy linguistic stuff. And the court found that that was also fair use. And so and that was tested again and again. I think even yeah. the Supreme Court eventually reaffirmed the, the, the appeals court's decision on that subject. Uh, I guess here's the point about what you're describing for the folks who are listening. Uh, what we're talking oh, the about implications is are pretty interesting. Yeah. It's whether or not technology companies have the right to access publicly accessible work. It may be copyrighted work, but it's a publicly accessible work. Can a machine read a document that's on the web or a picture that's on the web and do something with it? And the big question is, what's it doing? What is the use? What's the nature of the use? And the technology companies will tell you for sure, this has been tried and tested again and again, as Amir just shared with us. And every time the court comes down and says, well, yeah, because what's happening here is these machines are reading it, but there's no, there's no law that prohibits a machine from reading a document. And then it's taking that information and doing something new or something different with it. And so this brings us to the subject of fair use and transformative use. Amir, can you tell us, help us understand what is fair use? And then let's later next get into the subject of transformative use, because I think a, a lot of this depends on these two concepts. Yeah, I think so fair use really rests on the principle that our society would be awfully boring uh, if authors had an absolute monopoly on the works they created, right? Um, And and to point towards the moment and the strange place in which we found ourselves, we, we currently are in a place where we have a comedian, right? A professional uh, satire maker, a satirist, has sued OpenAI claiming essentially absolute copyright in the works she created, right? That's the Sarah Silverman case. Yes. Right. And, and, and so what fair use does, right? And this is a concept that's enshrined in the constitution itself. I mean, we can go yeah. that I don't normally love quoting the founders, but, but here, I mean, article one, section eight, clause eight, right? Um, that that the U.S. Constitution grants Congress the power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. And so there's essentially a quid pro quo, right? You get this monopoly, so it's for the life of the author plus 70 years, and then, you know, a slightly different term if it's, if it's in a non-natural person. But what you get protection for under copyright our original works of authorship, right? Um, and by the way, in, in in our world, original, it's like not even, it, it's not a hurdle. It's barely even a speed bump, right? So it uh, there's a minimal, minimal creativity requirement. Um, so it's an original work of authorship, plus it has to be an eligible type of work, right? That is fixed in um, a, a, a tangible medium of expression. Right. So, you can't copyright a speech or you can't copyright a, per, a live performance, an improv performance. That's right. And, and so when, and, and so, you know, the, the idea of what is copyrightable is relevant here, 
because yeah. you're not allowed to copyright facts, ideas, um, or or methods. Right. right? So it's the creative expression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, it's protectable. And this is really, it has to be a really fixed important. work. And it has to be a single fixed work that you're copywriting. So That's you right. can't just say, like, my style as an artist is something I'm copywriting. That's right. Style is protectable in, in other ways through other concepts, right? There's rights of publicity. We see right. trademark, right? The, Max, yeah, the Louis, the, yeah, right? the Louis Vuitton red soles um, and sort of caterpillar colors, right? You can have mm -hmm. certain attributes become protectable, but those are other doctrines. It's not copyright. And so... Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, going back and, and connecting the dots, you know, we, we have this powerful new technology. It's for the first time in a while, generally meeting the hype, right? We were told segways would, would change the way we architected cities. And we've been fed, uh, you know, self, we were told to expect self-driving cars by now. And, yeah. and, and the tech hasn't really met the promise. Um, but the first time people started playing around with either the image generators or the chatbots, uh, you could see it, right? There yeah. was there was something there that felt different, and I think that's where um, that's where the sort of these visceral reactions, these deep emotions are are, are coming from. And and again, yeah. going back, people are reaching for copyright without understanding what it really is, right? Like it's important. Well, I want to I want to come back to a point you made earlier because it's it's important. You mentioned that. Um... Uh, one artist felt like they had a comedian had a sense of absolute copyright. Let's hang on to that idea for a second, because when you reference the Constitution, quite a lot of people, uh, quite a lot of people that I know believe that what the Constitution asserts is that people have this absolute right. But what you're pointing out is something that's really important. It's a little bit subtle in the way it's framed in the Constitution. The purpose for copyright in the Constitution is to serve the public, to serve the interests of the public. And all subsequent copyright law is a balancing act between serving the public interest, which is to say that the public needs a way to engage with ideas. And if we treated ideas in books like real property, where you could put a fence around it and nobody else could come into it, well, then people couldn't engage with ideas without infringing. So the, so the founders, in their wisdom, they said, we have to create kind of a loophole here or like a little escape valve where society can engage with these ideas, including quoting sections of them if they want to write critical reviews or use them for research purposes or use them for education and so on. And so that gave the opening to fair use. And fair use is uh, actually a judge invented the concept in a ruling, I think, in 1840. Uh, but it was later encoded in the 1976 Lord, Lord Copyright Act. Yeah, Lord Edinburgh, actually. Thank you. And, and the point there is, is that uh, the Copyright Act, the 76 Copyright Act, sets forth very clearly exactly what you can do as fair use. Uh, it cites a number of instances. And it did that specifically to kind of clarify the matter. And to make it emphatically clear that there is no such thing as absolute copyright, where you have absolute control over all uses. You right. don't. Tell us about derivative works and tell us about transformative use, because I think these two concepts are going to be important as well. Yeah. So, you know, copyright covers, it, it, it provides the author protection over a couple of things, right? And it sort of enumerates these, these bundle of, of, of rights. Um, you know, it gives you the rights to control reproductions of the work, distributions of the work public performances, displays, all of those we're familiar with. One of the things it also allows the author to control are the right are, are the rights to derivative works. Now, derivative works are um, sort of famously um, uh, poorly defined in some ways, right? And, and just because, um, a, a, so a derivative work is essentially a subsequent work that uh, relies in substance on, on the prior work. 
But that alone, so that's necessary, but not sufficient, right? And sort of the bright line for what is a derivative work um, is is, um, kind of difficult, actually, to pin down. And it depends on a lot of uh, particular facts and circumstances. Right. Uh, So like in a copyright lawsuit or a copyright case, the court would pay very close attention to what they call the fact pattern, which is to say, like, how was it used? What was the intended purpose? Was it a commercial use or not? Was it for private use or public use? Was the was the derivative work published by someone else? And so, so there's all these factors that mean that there is no one size fits all solution to copyright. Each case is going to be determined um, on its own merits and on the facts of the matter. Yeah, that 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 that's right. I mean, you know, the statute itself. If we want to go back to the copyright statute, right? It it. it 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 does say that a derivative work is something that's based on a pre-existing work and it gives examples you know there there will be examples like translations musical arrangements uh you know uh, moving from one like making a you know a uh, a book into uh, a motion picture uh th- those sorts of things um but really the line as to what is a derivative and and what is uh allow what what is a is, is a new work and what is a substantially new work in which the um, the original author cannot control? Um, that that is, you know, look, we've been fighting about that for 30, 40 years, right? Um, well, I'd say copyright law evolves because you know technology evolves, and media evolves, and consumer habits evolve, and culture evolves. And so, I think in the wisdom, the the you know the the the, the founders who wrote the Constitution, they didn't spell out exactly how to implement copyright law. They left it to the courts. And it's been a moving target ever since because society has moved on. I think that's society actually- moves on, and it and it's what feels right, right? The the the, the broad yeah. test is the deri- the 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 second work in order to infringe has to take a substantially similar quantum of the first work, and so what substantially similar is to your point, Robert. I think that changes, you know, decade by decade. Yeah, um, I think yeah. you know Gen Z probably would have a different view on that than our generation, right? If we ask them to give their views of what what a substantially similar, you know, second work would be as opposed to. Hmm. So the so question our audience is going to be thinking right now then is to say, hang on, these uh, generative AI systems have been trained on hundreds of millions of copyrighted works. We don't know exactly how many because that information is not necessarily made public, but we know that there are definitely lots of copyrighted works in the training set. Now the I resulting product, Google Books trending set as part of it actually. Okay, so and, and then the and then the the product here is a is a device that allows me to generate new work, like me as a consumer, as an end user, I can go in and type in a short command, and OpenAI will generate some paragraphs, or Midjourney will generate some images, and so forth. So there's really two parts of two areas that could be potentially infringing, right? One area is on the training. Um, and then the second area is, is my use, right, of this machine, right? So um, let's break those two things down. First of all, let's talk about training. Well, I've heard we, the term fair can training. We, um, can we uh, take a quick break before we do that, before we get into that? Okay, sure thing. Let's hang on then and we'll, uh, we'll take a break and then, and then we'll come back in a sec. So we're with uh, Amir Gavi of Freed Frank, and this is The Futurist. We'll be right back. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. 
and of course its spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and The Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. Uh, we have Amir Gavi uh, from Freed Frank. Um, he's a intellectual property and technology attorney. And we've been talking about uh, all of these uh, legal challenges and um, you know part of this alignment phase of the adoption of artificial intelligence where we figure out where AI is going to fit in. And right now we're coming up against some uh, legal precedents uh, based on early technology development, or some of them, as we were saying before break, go, go back to the 1800s. Um, and, you know, we are faced with something essentially new in terms of the way we transform data and so forth. But, um, Amir, just, uh, I just wanted you to clarify, um, you know, you, we talked about the, the base, basis of the training models and, and extracting data there. But the other implication you just, just made in that conversation and what Robert was saying before the break is that, um, actually who, whoever's writing the prompt or the user that says, all right, generate for me a story in the style of this author, um, you know, and, uh, you know, then attempts to use that, um, you know, either for entertainment purposes or, or whatever, could they could be a violator of, of laws, could they? Yeah, I mean, look, the way copyright law works is it's strict liability. It's not really intent-based. And so um, you you have, you know, um, an, an author could claim that someone who is, you know, uh, creating the prompt that is asking the platform to generate certain uh, images or text, um, you know, copyright law could view that as person as the infringer. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, we see a number of cases in which plaintiffs are, uh, you know, going directly at the platforms. Um, at this point, you have um, stability, mid-journey, deviant art, open AI, meta, and all of the Google affiliates, uh, the relevant Google affiliates, mm -hmm. um, have been sued um, as platforms for uh, infringing either on the training or on the outputs that they create, right? And, and sort of unpack that a little bit, um, right? The input uh, argument is that you you have taken a quantum of uh, copyrighted material um, and you you have made use, you have made an unlawful reproduction um, of that copyrighted work without the author's uh, consent. That's the training side. Um, the output side is, you know, your outputs are substantially similar to... Uh, the original work, and it is therefore um, a derivative work, and that right, as we discussed, under copyright law, rests with the author. Now, mm. with the with the you know, the end user uh, example, I used to work in a movie studio, and I've seen this story played out again and again and again uh, with the VCR, with the DVR, um, with various attempts to do cloud DVRs and so forth. There've been a number of cases yeah, and very typically, you know, what happens is the company that owns the copyright and it's always a company, it's not an individual, 
The company that owns the copyright brings a lawsuit against the company that makes the consumer electronics device, claiming that this is a copying machine, that you're going to be able to make it possible for people to make millions and millions of illegal copies. And they bring a lawsuit and the courts always end up saying, no, actually, there's a substantial non-infringing use here, which is that people are just going to use these things to watch their own home collection of videos which in turns out is what 99.9% .9 of the people actually do with the thing. So they're correct about that. And the cases end up always winning in favor of the company that makes the device. Is this any different? It looks to me like it's the exact same thing. You know, I could definitely go to Midjourney today if I wanted to and type in, uh, give me examples of Harry Potter characters in Star Wars, right? So there I am. Well, there's, brand, there's brand implications for, for individuals like authors or actors. But, have, but if I were to if do someone's that, to make a generative version of you and play that in a movie and you did something really immoral, right? But the then, machine... You know, it, the company that makes the machine is not liable for infringement. No, I, I it's my I, choice as an individual to do yeah, that. And I we are that. we. I, I will observe that we are almost forty years from the Sony versus Be uh, Universal City Studios case, the the Betamax case, mm -hmm. which is I think the case you're you're referencing, which, which Robert, which said that you know, uh, so long as there's substantial non infringing uses of the technology, we're not going to presume that uh, making the platform available is is an inherent you know per se infringement and so by and extension I, we can expect the courts to look at that precedent right i mean obviously we can't tell what the courts are going to do but um but my sense is that this has been this this matter has been tested again and again and users sounds might like use it's it. not an easy road for people who are challenging ai that's what that's what it sounds like to me so i i, I have to be somewhat careful to not engage in, in hubris here. I, I will observe yeah. a couple of things. Um, I, I think a lot of academics, when they look at the facts, um, they 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 believe that there is fair use in, uh, in, in most cases in training the AI systems on publicly available data. Um, I think it's hard for people to opine on the output cases because those are inherently fact specific you you literally have to look and compare the two images and to see you know to what degree they are similar um you know copyright law can get rather technical um i'm sort of famous amongst my peer group for reminding people that that probably a lot of software that we think is copyrighted or copyrightable probably is not because um much of the code, in particular, as we have object-oriented programming these days. I mean, let's set aside Codex and Copilot, but when you're using object-oriented programming, you're really um, all, almost purely creating functional works, um, and you're you're dragging and dropping based on what you want the system to do. Um, and and right. and you as, as you may know, under copyright, yeah. again, you're you're allowed to protect the artistic elements, but the functional elements. That that's the sense of fair doctrine. The functional elements are not protectable. And so, it, it, time and time again, as we've really gotten into deep cases, this was also borne out in in Oracle versus Google, right? Uh, famously, where where um, thousands of lines of code were were allowed to be. Uh, copied verbatim um, and, and put into Android, and that was not deemed um, an, an infringement. Um, you know, fair use was found there too. Um, I, I think it's it's just important to highlight, you know, that that aspect. Hmm. And I think if you were to take that take a case like that, first of all, you'd have to find an individual user 
and you'd have to understand that they were trying to make copies of copyrighted works. But even if that person intentionally did it, you know, if they wrote into the prompt exactly, you know, those those terms that I used, even then it's going to be really hard to point to the company that makes the AI and say that they had some role yeah. as yeah. contributory to that. I don't see how that's going to happen. Yeah, because- I want to be careful. I want to be careful, Robert, because, okay. you know, other than for for sort of damages purposes, for liability, again, copyright is a strict liability regime. Intent doesn't really matter. You just look at the outputs and you look at the infringements. I think this is extremely relevant when I'm hearing the debate around whether this is fair or not, and people try and bring in copyright. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really important to notice that in uh, to 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 highlight that in the U.S., um, we don't have what's called a sweat of the brow doctrine. That exists in in some other parts of the world, which is to say, just because you tried really, really hard to create the work doesn't mean that it's protectable under copyright. It has to be protectable because, you know, it is an artistic expression and it's not capturing facts or ideas or methods, right? That's what makes it copyrightable, not because you spend a lot of time on it, mm-hmm. right? And 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 that sounds silly, but it's really important because I think one of the things I'm reading um, and when I hear artists' objections is they feel wronged because they spent, a, they may have spent months or years creating this work You're and right. they're offended that the, that the, the AI model um, can create something and I'm, I'm not going to, sort of editorialized as to whether it's close approximation or not. that can create something style. right yeah. um in a matter of seconds that yeah, offends yeah. them and they they feel like that feeling should be actionable and i'm not sure i agree as a matter of law i'm sympathetic as a matter of policy and mores yeah. and where we want to be as a society um you know i I think all, frankly, this is part of a broader point. I, I think maybe even the, um, you know, the the AI, you know, the startups and 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 a lot of the um, the founders of these AI companies may want to step back and reread Kuhn's, you know, structure of scientific revolutions um, when because we are it, it feels like we've hit an inflection point, and there are paradigms and whether we want to be uh, thinking about copyright and well i think you know the probably the greatest um you know illustration of of this from a disruptive nature perspective or analogy is probably the printing press you know i mean the printing press created chaos in terms of you know, the conventional church hierarchy and its involvement in government and, and so forth. Um, you know, it was, you know, it was really, it was a, a really interesting period of time. And it's, it feels like the something similar is happening with artificial intelligence. Well, I think you can look back. I think there's a couple of things. And I think Robert hit the nail on the head. I think a lot of the objections are also being promulgated by people, uh, people, by corporations who will be disintermediated. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. You that. can see you can see how this both frees data, um, but also makes content generation uh, more direct and easier. Right. And those two things threaten a lot of gatekeepers who have yeah. quite literally made businesses out of controlling the distribution of media. This is a direct um 
you know, challenge to some of those, uh, those, those sort of structural. I mean, we use, we use AI on this show to create clips. We run the episodes through and the video and audio through an algorithm and it cuts out TikTok and, you know, Instagram um, stories for us, you know, like with AI, it's just that that tech's amazing to use as a creator. I mean, uh, previously I would have had to hire a team. They, you know, I'd have to give them t- um, timestamps, all of that sort of stuff. And then we, you know, we'd have maybe have to have a conversation about it. Then they'd have a couple of attempts at getting the video right. And now I've got an algorithm I can run. I this mean, one thing, worth, no, one thing that's worth noting though, is I, I, I suspect maybe one of the reasons people are afraid of AI is that it's trained on us, right? Like, yeah, trained yeah no, on that's the, true. We've talked about that many times on the show. Don't replace us. Yeah, that's the fear. Well, no, not just that, but it is, you know, as one who is, you know, uh, it feels a, it a feels bit of a nihilist. Human. Well, yeah. if we have dark, if we have a dark sense of humanity, right, the idea that we would train autonomous or semi-autonomous agents based on, you know, the contrails of, of what we've put out, um, <laughs> that can be a scary thing. Sure. Oh, yeah. Look, and, you know, the, the conversation about generative AI and copyright, very often um, the, the poster child for this is a writer, a downtrodden writer who's underpaid or a starving artist who has a moral right to control their work or something. But let's get really clear. That's an argument. Copyright suits are brought by corporations. Most copyrights are owned by corporations. Most copyrights are renewed by corporations. So what you really have here is a battle between two gigantic kinds of corporations. The media companies, which represent the past, and the technology companies, they're trying to push towards the future. Now, they're pushing towards the future, and they're not asking for permission. That's why there's some friction here. That's why there's pushback. But let's get really clear about what's at stake here, because when we hear about someone saying, oh, you know, I'm going to sue somebody for copyright infringement, I've got rights, I want to stop it. What they're saying is that they do not want that use to persist. They want to cease that use. They want to stop that. And if the use in question is one that's going to be progressive and and and, and bestow new powers on people. And I would argue that was the, the epiphany that I had. I realized, wow, if the technology companies are thwarted here by the, by the copyright industry, by the copyright mo- monopolies, then what that means is that this new incredible skill that we got, this new gift, this superpower, generative AI that makes bad writers into mediocre writers or mediocre writers into better writers, or it streamlines a business process, or it makes it possible for someone to do their their marketing faster, uh, or it makes a coder, it makes it possible for a coder to write code faster and better. If the copyright industry prevails, they're going to prevent those people from getting those skills. So what the court has to weigh is this massive benefit for half of humanity, let's say, versus the rights of a very small number of people. And let's be really clear, they are not artists that are bringing these lawsuits. They're Mm. corporations that are behind it. And so it's a battle of big corporations. And right now, you're right, the public sentiment is run against big tech because big tech has been pushing us around. We do feel bullied by big tech. But let's not make any mistake about it. The Walt Disney Company and the other big media companies They've been building copyright monopolies and they've been pushing hard to extend yeah. the Well, the extensions of copyrights, that's, that's been led by players like Disney, you're right. That's right. Yeah. For dozens of years, right? So today, yeah. the copyright term is effectively 100 years. Let's call it perpetual. Yeah. When, when the Constitution was written, it was 14 years plus another 14. How did that happen? It didn't happen by accident. It happened by assiduous marketing, lobbying, pushing, driving. You know, Disney famously spent $6 million supporting candidates for office 
who helped them get the copyright extensions that they sought. And they got pilloried for that, right? And even the Supreme Court kind of held their nose when they wrote a a ruling on the subject, but they let it pass because the court at that time wasn't going to get in the way of the legislature. Who knows what they'll do today? But I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that this is a battle between big companies. It's not really a battle about artists. Uh, That's a smokescreen. Yeah, I mean, to your point, right, um, Getty uh, Images is sued one of my clients, uh, Stability AI, uh, in the U.S. and the U.K., um, for, you know, uh, for copyright infringement of their works. I think one of the interesting, um, ironic and maybe humorous, uh, outcomes of that has been, there was a lawsuit filed, um, I think about a week or two ago, uh, by a photographer, um, who, who saw the Getty lawsuits and, uh, he filed his own suit in the Southern district of New York, um, claiming that Getty, uh, wrongly, unlawfully, is trying to charge other people to license his copyrighted work when for years he has revoked his license. It was a license first granted to Associated Press and sort of somehow found its way uh, to Getty. But he never expressly granted the license. And he has for years been trying to get Getty to acknowledge um, that they don't have the authority, right, to make downstream licenses. And so, you know, it's a a complex topic. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, another thing that makes me chuckle is I, I think back Justice Souter um, uh, noted in in the uh, Campbell case, right, which which was sort of seminal for identifying transformative use. Yeah, um, the famous two live crew parody. Two live crew parody, right? He he noted this sort of thing about artists, which you're highlighting, is that you know they 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 ask for criticism, but they only want praise. Um, and you know, I I, I think it's it's. We have to be sensitive in society to people's life's work, but I don't think 21st century America will countenance a chilling effect or uh, shutting down AI training. Now, why do I say it? Again, um, I think the lawyers I'm working with and alongside, um, you know, a a lot of smart lawyers um, who are in, you know, uh, the cases I'm handling and some of the the other cases um, out there. But we shouldn't be precious about it. Taking a step back, right? The US and China have identified AI as being core to national security for these countries on a go forward basis, right? They don't think this is a fluke. So China famously made it a part of their national plan. The United States has gone so far as to ban the NVIDIA A100s, H100s, and and we saw even this week the latest round of tech investments. in these AI technologies. The US also passed a $250 billion uh, CHIPS Act to streamline the supply chain of semiconductors, which are valuable to uh, this technology. And so I I think it would be a misreading and misunderstanding um, of the importance to say that, you know, the courts, um, even if they get it wrong in the district court level, that this will be the end of the story and that AI training will be shut down in the US. I, I quite literally can't fathom that from a from a no, from an policy perspective and economic. Perspective. It just yeah. doesn't work, right? So if the court was to get it wrong, I think you're gonna see the different branches of the US the, government the, have to I step mean, the, in. Even in the EU, where um they now have 
um, demands for data transparency in terms of the models. They're not saying you can't use the data, right? They're, they're just saying at the moment that that needs to be transparent. But well, the they are. They they have right. There's there's algorithmic transparency. They 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 make essentially what's a, what's called a risk based assessment. They say we're going to segment the market, and and depending on how you intend on using AI, we're going to regulate it differently, right? There are certain high risk areas that are off limits. You know, you're not going to be allowed right. uh, to use automated systems on AI for, you know, nuclear plants and, and other things like that. But mm -hmm. but low risk, you know, if you want to, like, create, um, you know, haikus, then have at it. Yeah. You know, that's funny. When we talk about regulation, um, uh, my observation is that the path the U.S. is going down is the Congress tries to figure out how on earth to regulate AI. And the AI companies are asking for it, right? Sam Altman famously went to Congress and basically begged them to regulate OpenAI and other companies. But the conversation is starting to revolve around the concept of licensing, where somehow some smart person in the government will decide whether or not a company should get the license uh, to, to use AI or to develop AI models and so forth. And this is an irony to me because we have this problem already with copyright where copyright is granted to a company and then the companies that, that start to accumulate lots and lots of copyrights, they have a natural economic incentive to go work very hard and lobby Congress copyright and you know, support yeah. candidates who will extend copyright term and thereby help them build a monopoly, which is definitely not what was intended when the Constitution was written. So on the one hand, you've got this kind of like you know copyright monopoly, I would say. And now the AI companies are going to Congress and they're saying, please regulate us. We think a, a licensing me mechanism is the right way to do it. And they're like, wait, that's the exact same thing. So you're now going to create another monopoly with a high barrier to entry. Uh, you know, there'll be some process of vetting. There'll be some requirements. You might have to put up a bond or something else, which means it'll be a barrier to new companies. In other words, it's going to entrench the leading companies uh, in their current position. And then they'll end up looking like monopolies on the other side that they're opposed to. I find this extremely funny. No one else is, you know, Congress doesn't seem to see this as a problem. I guess it's their only regulatory tool that they've got is licensing. Yeah, well, I guess they see it like the FCC, you know, in terms of these, um, you know, they, they are platforms that are generating content like you would broadcast or print or media. I, I guess that's how they see it. There, there's a licensing analogy there. I, I think they like the gatekeeper function. They like yeah. the idea. I mean, it's yeah. rhetorically persuasive to say you hire some experts, they review applications, and they will decide what is safe. I think it, it, it's actually born out of this argument that AI, and, and I think this is a bit of a, of a, of a fallacy, frankly, um, the idea that that AIs are all black boxes and that they're inherently right. unknowable. I, I think, look, they're incredibly complex. Um, I, you know, advise companies on on building these things out. Um, I don't think they're they're unknowable. Um, you 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 know. No, I think it's fair to say we know how they work. We just don't know why they. Do well, let me give another example. But then how can you right? regulate something if you don't know how it works? Right? How, how Prozac, Robert Prozac, right? Yeah. I, I did, so I studied neuroscience before I went to law school. I was doing bench science on uh, SSRIs. And what was interesting was uh, we knew at the time that these things would have an effect once we gave it to stressed rats three and a half weeks later. But no one at the time knew the mechanism of action. And that was actually quite unique. It, it's one of the first cases where where you you had uh, a, a product, and in this case, right, it's being dosed ultimately in humans. And even at the time it was dosed in humans, we didn't know the precise mechanisms of action. We knew that there would be extra serotonin 
um, um, you know, and, and, and flooding in the system. Um, but, but, but in, in, in most other sort of pharmaceutical compounds, we knew how it worked. We didn't really know how it worked there. And yet we decided there was, you know, a, a public good. It was better to help people fight depression, um, you know, uh, without, without knowing all the interstitial steps, right. Which so, is actually exactly how worked. these AI because systems work. Yeah. Right. That's right. A good I, mean, I, I, I mean, we, we're running out of time. So I do, I do want to, um, get back to sort of the core, the kernel of our show here, which is we are futurists, right? And we do like to think about how this might play out. Now, I I, I, I want to separate you from the anxiety about making forecasts about what's going to happen with specific cases and say, all right, you know, let's forget about that. Let's talk 20 or 30 years out. You know, can you imagine a time in, in the future? And what, what do you think, um, you know, how do you think the law will have been impacted by artificial intelligence generally and and what are your what are your thoughts and musings on that as, as just a you know an intellectual point it's a great question i think it's hard for me to think about ai um separate from the advancements in hardware i think about how we got to where we are today yep. um you know when i was studying neuroscience and 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 computational neuroscience there were people who theorized about this, but the hardware didn't exist and the data didn't exist. And so projecting out 20 years from now, we will have some variety of quantum computing. So our computing capabilities will be substantially different than what they are today. I think we will and have- And even the accelerated computing stuff that uh, NVIDIA showed off the last few weeks. Robert, you, yeah. you and I were talking about that the other day. Really amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Some really amazing advances coming. Yeah, and, Jensen and, Huang and, said to me, what will you do with a laptop that's a million times more powerful? Because that's what you're going to have. Exactly. Well, one of the things one of the things that's going to happen is we're going to have different types of content generated. And yeah. so I, I'm wrapping my it's a great question. I'm trying to synthesize in my head in real time this idea of amazing hardware, quantitatively and qualitatively different data that can be, you know, used, manipulated. Mm. Um I think it's going to be exciting. I think we're going to hit a reset at some point where society is going to have yeah. to determine um, a different set of ground rules. I don't think we're there yet. I think we're going to be doing. I a have a theory. Yeah. On, on, I have a theory on when that's going to happen, Amir. Right? Tell me. And that is that at some point in the future, over the next 30 or 40 years, at some point, we're going to decide that the management of the legal system largely, especially with contract law because of smart contracts, but generally, even in terms of justice and so forth, is better handled by AI for consistency, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, and so that, I wouldn't disagree. You as you're going to lose your job, Amir. You're, you're going to get no, 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 I wouldn't I'm, disagree as long as, and that's probably a good thing, by the way, Robert. I, I wouldn't disagree that we have publicly prosecutable algorithms, right? I mean, these things have to live in a, right. in a but giant the glass point, box. The yeah. point of that is if you're going to um, Im, uh, impute that level of automation on society, you're also going to have to have a review of the laws on the books and so forth to see their fit for that type of level of automation. And that's going to result in a massive sort of filtering of the legal system towards this autonomous system. And that's, and that's okay, right? When we moved from horse and buggy to cars, right? We adopted right. new new uh, norms 
Right, we and, had the red flag laws initially. Laws. I mean, yeah, you know, we yeah. this is the advancement. Let's not forget, this is just a part of the arc of technology, right? And it, it, it's it's another right. We're we're on a spectrum here. Um, we haven't landed on a new planet. It feels like magic, but it isn't, right? These this is all based on you know principles um, that that are actually pretty well defined. Okay, Amir, um, I'm thinking about our audience right now, and I'm, I bet there's some folks out there who have two questions. So just as a parting shot, maybe I can ask you for some free legal advice. Uh, <laughs> the first question is, um, if there's a person listening and they're thinking, well, maybe I should be careful, maybe I shouldn't use these systems because maybe I'll be infringing copyright. Is it correct that um, it's okay for you to use these systems for your own personal use if you're not publishing commercially that there's a very low likelihood that you're going to be in any kind of trouble if you're using these systems, even if you're trying to make um, let's say fan fiction. So I'm going to open out by quoting my friend Mark Lemley and saying uh, this isn't legal advice. If it was, it'd be followed by a bill. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I, you I know, for people using it for their own personal uses, look, unless you have the case in which the rights owner is going to, you know, uh, make Napster Redux, right? Whether you're going to have people, you know, co corporations going after people in college dorms. It seems extremely unlikely um, that individual users, uh, I mean, the, will will be you know sued for copyright infringement. It would be uh, in, an incredibly bizarre uh, move by a corporation to do that. Uh, probably be pretty tone deaf in this world. I mean, we think back at Napster; that was pre-social media, TikTok. Um, it was, you know, I, I think it would be it would be a huge mistake for a corporation to do that. Having said all of that, I will go back and, and remind us um, that copyright is a strict liability. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the second question is this: um, Let's say I'm using Midjourney, which I am doing every day. I'm loving it; it's super fun for me to use. Can I copyright the work that's generated by an AI system like Midjourney or ChatGPT? Can I get a copyright for that? Are you asking me what I think the law should be or what the Copyright Office currently thinks? Tell me about uh, the March Copyright Office guidance yeah. and then tell me what you think. But the guidance from the Copyright Office basically said that uh, if the AI system is creating the output, you will not, it, that, that will essentially become a public domain work, that it's not yeah. copyright eligible because the system has generated it. The Copyright Office has, has maintained over the past couple of years this human authorship requirement. There are a lot of debates um, as to whether that has been effectively just, you know, conveniently made up by the Copyright Office, or whether there is uh, legislative history or textual support in the statute. I'm, I'm not sort of going to opine on that and get into that. I will say, um, and 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 I have a, a friend colleague, Joe Grotz, who is uh, representing Chris Castanova um, before the Copyright Office challenging their denial of of her uh, of copyrightability and authorship uh, for her works, um, I, I you know I personally I think that these systems understanding how they really work they're a lot closer to a digital camera and if not even a digital camera the cameras on our phones right mm -hmm. the reality is the cop the basis of the copyright office's rejection is that there is an indeterminate result that the system there is not a one to one correlation between the inputs that the user makes and a deterministic output. 
that the, that there is a statistical analysis done by the model and you get a variety of outputs. You may get four, 16, depending on the uh, the, the system uh, outputs and you, you sort of choose that as a base and you work from there, right? In the copyright office, now, they didn't say it's an absolute denial. They said the human element. So if you take a, an output from an AI system and then you take that to Photoshop, and you, it's funny now that using Photoshop is viewed as manual, but if you if you mm. manually use Photoshop to manipulate the AI system's output, you do get, uh, you can get, um, you know, copyright in that incremental part yeah, that the you human, worked the on. the human touch us. parts. Right. Now, mm. what, what, what I think the copyright office is going to hear um, from various folks is, well, wait, you know, we currently allow copyright for, people taking, you know, pictures uh, with their digital camera, there is a ton of pre and post processing <laughs> that goes on, right? Including like artificial to, intelligence in those yeah, cameras. Exactly. If I had to manually adjust all of my settings in order to, yeah. to take a picture of my phone, mm -hmm. they would be awful. It wouldn't look anything like what's happening now. So basically, I just, I literally just press a button and the system handles the rest. And, and the analogy that I think people are making, and I, I think they're mostly right, is the prompt engineer gives a pretty detailed um, guidance and effectively does the uh, analog to pointing the camera and hits submit, and the system will come with an output that you work from. Mm -hmm. The two aren't really as different as I think the Copyright Office has has laid out in their um, in their guidance. Uh, this is great. Well, Amir, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for your very thoughtful answers to our questions. Uh, it gets a little feisty here on the show. It was, it was, it was quite a technical show. It was interesting. I um, like shows like this. How can we follow you? Like, how can people keep track of you and the cases that you're working on to see what happens? Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. I share ideas. They can reach out, um, as, you know, partner at a big law firm. I am, uh, endlessly reachable. People should, um, you know, feel free to, to, to send me a note and I'm happy to, you know, uh, share ideas with folks. Very cool. Thanks again for your time. Thanks for joining us on the futurists and, uh, Brett, it's always good to see you. Big thanks to Kevin, our engineer and Elizabeth, our producer and the rest of the folks at provoke media for making the show possible. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, your support is what makes this show happen. And we are thrilled to have it. If you like this show, please tell a friend that helps us get more audience and that helps us keep making more shows. So we'll be back here next week with another person who's working actively on constructing the future that they envision. And we will see you in the future. In the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.